You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Name your favorite television family. Now, if you're not really a TV watcher, you can name your favorite fictional family from a book or a film. But if you can, what family or couple and family have you sort of watched in a television series where you you started to really root for them and feel like some sort of deep connection? What, What family comes to mind? Well, if you chose a book family, then a great answer would be the Igaby family from the Wingfeather Saga, which many of you may not have read, but you should. It is a beautiful kid series that just totally captured my heart. But if you did choose a television family, hopefully you chose the right one, because the correct answer to that is the Halpert family. Jim, Pam, Cece, and Philip. Now I know maybe you didn't choose them because you think of them as a couple, but Jim and Pam were a couple in the show The Office, which ran for a number of years. And I know many of us consider that show to be a comedy, and it is, but at the core of that comedy is this relationship and this family of the Halperts. The other day, I happened to catch an episode of The Office that just totally caught me off guard in how powerful of a depiction of love that it was. For eight years or eight seasons or so, Jim and Pam's relationship had developed. And yet due to busyness and family responsibilities and work, they began to experience a little bit of distance, a little bit of separation between the two of them. It was as if there was a wedge between them that they couldn't quite cross. And they attempted a few gestures. They went to couples counseling. They spoke this real weird therapies type language to each other just to try to make things work. But you could see that it just wasn't working. They were not connecting in any real deep way. And in this episode, Jim goes to leave to head to to work in a different city. And as he's leaving, Pam runs out to him with his umbrella and gives it to him. But as she gives it to him, she doesn't really know what to say. She wants something to fix the relationship, but she just simply says bye and have a good trip. And then she turns to leave. And the wounds and the hurt and the tension in that moment are thick. And Jim reaches out and grabs her arm and holds both of her arms and he goes to say something. You can tell he's searching for words and he simply goes, I, and then he just hugs her. And when he hugs her, he holds her so closely and just hangs on for all he's worth. And as he's doing this, she just stands there awkwardly with her arms sort of like this, allowing herself to be hugged, but not returning it. And she's standing that way for about 10 full seconds of incredibly awkward silence as he just hangs on for dear life. And the screen in that moment cuts away from the hug that they're sharing or maybe that he's giving and she's receiving to their wedding day. And it's the scene of their wedding ceremony where his brother is reading a particular scripture over them as a couple. And I have to tell you, it was incredibly moving to hear that text being read in that setting. Part of the text we're looking at today is what he had read over them at their 
wedding. Now, I think certain scenes like that, certain depictions of love can be incredibly powerful to see because all of us have this deep, deep longing to, to, to be known, truly known by someone else, to be truly wanted by someone else, to have somebody who will sacrifice for us. We all long for that reality in our lives to have the kind of, well, the kind of love that we see in a fictional family sometimes, like the Igabees, or in the Halpert family on The Office, those sort of moments can really, really capture our hearts. Well, we are in our study of 1 Corinthians, and today we're in chapter 13, and the world of the Corinthian church was one that was spinning, well, kind of wildly. Uh, the culture, things in the air, different ideas, worship of different gods was all around this church. It was a bit like stepping into an amusement park ride where the whole world seems to be spinning and can throw off your balance. And the Apostle Paul is writing to this church that he helped start. And he's saying, I want you to be centered, to like settle your feet on the person and the work of Jesus. I, I want you just to kind of settle down and recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Now, the issues that he addressed throughout this letter are myriad. I mean, they're suing each other, they're sleeping around, even in their worship services, they're getting drunk, they're like acting up with their spiritual gifts and kind of elbowing their way to the front of the line and grandstanding in front of one another. It's a mess. In fact, in chapter 14, he dives into two specific issues related to their spiritual gifts where they're having some real problems. Prophecy and tongues. These two things that people are exercising in their gatherings in a way that's not entirely, well, ordered or clear or appropriate. So some people are speaking in tongues, these other languages, and there was no interpreter of those tongues. So it was causing a bit of chaos and new people who were showing up at the events, they were kind of like, what is going on? Other people were giving prophecies. And as they were giving prophecies, it seems that they would then evaluate those as a community. But it turns out that some folks, including some of the wives of some of the men who gave prophecies, would kind of argue with their spouses right in front of everybody. And it was an entirely awkward scene. I mean, can you imagine mid-sermon if the pastor's wife just grabbed the mic and said, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, maybe my wife feels that way occasionally. But if she did that in the middle of a sermon, not only would it be disruptive, but it would also suggest that maybe things aren't so great at home. And so Paul addresses these two things, tongues and prophecy, and he dives into deep detail. You should check it out with your small group or on your own at some point. Do a good study on that. But today, I want to look at this chapter, this chapter 13, which comes right between the sort of introduction of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then chapter 14 on these two specific spiritual gifts. Right sandwiched in the middle is this chapter that most times we hear read at, well, weddings like Jim and Pam's. And it's an entirely appropriate text to be read in a wedding setting because it is so beautifully and profoundly written about love. So it definitely connects to people who are getting married. And yet, a wedding was not the original intention of this text. It wasn't the original audience. The original audience was a church. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth that were having these struggles, and he was really encouraging them in this arena of love. Now, 
For some of us, the only church experiences we have had have been relatively large gatherings. I mean, even at our church here, most Sundays we have, you know, lot, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousand people plus who show up here. Their church was probably more akin to like a large small group where some local families and singles gathered together in a house, maybe 30 of them, maybe 50 if they were really, really big. And it was a group of people that would have known each other and known how to care for each other and how to treat each other. And yet for some reason, they, they weren't. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, this is important. I want you to, to, to just see how beautiful, well, true love really is. So this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now... So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I mean, isn't that brilliant? I mean, of course that gets read at weddings. That is one of the most profoundly beautiful sections of, well, writing in all of human history. There's no way that I can do this subject matter of love today or this text justice, but I will try to explain a few things in the words of a very astute biblical scholar, author, pastor extraordinaire, one by the name of, well, Pat Schwenk, the gifts of the Spirit that he talks about in 12 and 14 are not as big of a deal as the Spirit of love and the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit greater than the gifts of the Spirit. Love is greater. That's what this whole text is all about. So today, we are going to talk a bit about love. We're going to talk about this thing that can save a fading couple or a struggling family or hold together a growing church. We're going to talk about true love. So first, let's look at what true love is not. Let's first see what it is not. Now, there's a ton we can say about what love is and what, it, what love is not, particularly as we start heading down the road of romantic love. I mean, I could just go off on this and maybe someday I will, but today we're going to stick with what the Apostle Paul says specifically about what love is not. He wants us to be able to spot the genuine article and be able to tell what it is from some of the fake substitutes. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever seen one of those reality shows like about a pawn shop or like Antiques Roadshow where sometimes people will bring in these old things that they think are the genuine article and they will have an expert sort of examine and weigh judgment on it. And sometimes they're correct that what they're bringing to the expert is in fact very valuable and old and ancient and whatever. But sometimes what they bring in is essentially an imposter, fool's gold. It's something that looks real, but is not. And they need the experts to help them see the difference. Well, this is what Paul is doing here. He is like an expert who gives some signs of what fool's gold love can look like. And some of us have experienced that kind of love in the past where we thought it was real and then it just fell apart. And he starts by telling us what it isn't. If I speak in the tongue of men, of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What he says is that true love is not just words. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, he says, there's something about love that makes it more than just saying words. We've all known people that can say really nice, beautiful things and still not have any real, true love underneath those words. It's like a clanging cymbal. Like it might make a noise, it might capture our attention, but true love has to be more than just somebody saying nice things because while words are necessary, sometimes words can be manipulative. People can use loving sounding words to try to get their own way. So true love has to be more than just words. So it's not just words. He also says it's not just gifts and skills. Chapters 12 and 14, all about spiritual gifts. That's where we spent the majority of our time last week. And Paul says, you should eagerly desire the greater gifts. But he says, I will show you a more excellent way. It is possible to be loaded with gifts and talents and skills and to even be around a person that's super talented at everything and for them to not be very loving about it. They might use those gifts and talents and skills for their own good and not yours. So he says, it, true love isn't just being talented or uh, empowered to do special things. We've all seen famous and powerful people, even some of the most religious people, fail miserably in their relationships. It takes more than just words or spiritual gifts to really love. It requires real spiritual maturity to love. He also tells us that True love is not even just sacrifice. He says, if I give up my body to be burned, but have not love, then, then, then I'm nothing. So in some ways, it is possible for someone to sacrifice selfishly, to do something that seems loving. And can't you see all this that I'm doing for you? And yet underneath, it's actually just one more way to make themselves feel good, to give themselves credit to put you in their debt. That true love is, I mean, it's about sacrifice, but it's not just about sacrifice because some sacrifices are in fact selfish. So, I mean, again, all three of these things, words and gifts and sacrifice that he mentions, he's not saying that that's not, that has no part of love. 
All of those are legitimate expressions of love for me to tell my wife how much I love her and give her great gifts and you know, use my talents for her and sacrifice. But the question is, for whom am I doing those things? Am I doing it ultimately for me or for her? Because sometimes people will do those things and it will be like fool's gold. The first person who, some people will just talk for themselves. They will give just to make themselves look good. They will even sacrifice just to get recognition. And Paul says, that's not true love. So then what is it? Because he doesn't just give us kind of the negative examples of love. He also gives us the positive. He says love is, well, he says it's patient. And it's kind of, he goes through this, this whole beautiful list. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If I spent some time considering a gift to give to my spouse and uh, for our anniversary, let's say. And I earned some money for it and I, and I purchased it. And then I delivered it on that day. And as she opened this gift and she really liked the gift, she said to me, oh, thank you so much for this wonderful gift. If my response to her was, well, I consulted my AI bot and it told me that this day was coming. And it said that women your age generally like this sort of gift. And it also told me that good husbands buy gifts for their wives. And so in order to be a good husband, I wanted to just give this thing to you on this particular day that the AI bot suggested that I do. So there you go. And she said, wait, what? And I said, oh yeah, yeah. It's not like it's my pleasure to do this or that I was really excited. I just, I don't know, it's my duty as your husband to purchase these sorts of things and deliver them on time. Would, would, would she feel loved in that scenario? No, I might be doing a good thing, but if I did it without a good heart, it wouldn't really feel like love. So throughout this list, what we see is that true love combines affection and action. Both are necessary. Like it's possible to do the right things without having the right affection. And on one hand, it's good. And on the other hand, it's empty. But, but it's also possible to have incredibly warm affection for someone and yet take no action. And on one hand, it's like nice, but it's also sort of weak. And so for true love, as he gives us this list, what he tells us is that we need to have both affection and action. That's what true love is. A number of years ago, on a Valentine's Day, Wall Street Journal featured an article that was written by the author of a book called Spouseonomics, which is all about using economics basically to master marriage and love. And, and he gives a number of bits of advice that he learned through his research on how to have a healthy, wonderful marriage. And a lot of it is about this combination. It's about taking your affection, not necessarily your feelings of the moment, because those feelings can wax away, but kind of drilling down and going, what do I care about most deeply? What, what do I really believe about this person in my relationship with them? So finding that deep affection and then, and then just putting simple action to it. So a lot of his advice was ridiculous stuff like do the dishes, have a great sex life, like close your mouth sometimes when you want to say something snarky. It was like very basic stuff. But essentially what he was saying was take this deep affection 
and then these sometimes simple, sometimes complicated actions and put them together and that's what love looks like. It sounds like he was reading what Paul says here because Paul tells us what it looks like. True love is sensitive. He says, he uses the words patient and kind. True love seeks to understand each other. It, it, it's something that wants to hear what the other person has to say more than it wants to be heard. It wants to win that other person in the small group more than it wants to win an argument. It wants to give more than it gets. It is, it's sensitive, it's patient, it's kind, it's thoughtful towards the other person. Now, I'm sure there are times where my wife thinks that I am doing things purposefully uh, to drive her crazy, but I'm not. I'm just giving her an opportunity to be patient and kind with me and to show me his true love. No, I mean, sometimes these things happen in a marriage. Sometimes they happen in a family. Sometimes they happen in a church where people are like frustrated and they don't feel like they're being heard and they start to get angry at each other. And he says, real love, the way it's supposed to happen in a church is patient and kind. It is sensitive to listen and learn from the other person. It's drilling down to that deep affection and then working hard to take actions in that direction. True love is also sincere. He, said, he talks about envying and boasting and rejoicing in truth. True love chooses patience and kindness. It also chooses to be sincere, to be quiet at times, to rejoice in the other person's success, to, to, to see that person in the small group, the person who makes more money than you, who gets more credit than you, whose kids seem to be better behaved than your kids, and to be excited for them. And to see that other person who's your friend and they're getting married and you're not getting married and you're a little like, oh, and it leaves you, oh, am I gonna have one less friend because they're gonna go into marriage life? And it celebrates them. That's what true love does. It, it, it's sincere in its celebration of others and in its learning to rejoice in the right things and not in the wrong things. And then lastly, he tells us that it believes all things and it bears all things and love never ends. He even says, true love is sticky. It, it, people who truly love each other stick together. It, it, it chooses to stick it out. It's like a burr on your coat that you just can't quite get rid of. That's what true love is about. It's those kinds of friendships that you've had for years and years and years and years, and you know that they will always be there for you. That's what true love looks like. It, in the words of Mark Twain, love seems the swiftest, but it is the slowest of all growths. No man or woman really knows what perfect love is until they've been married a quarter of a century. I'll expand what he was saying to friendships. It seems like really fast, but it's a really slow thing that no friend is a true friend until they've been your friend for 25 years, a quarter of a century, because true love sticks even in the hard times. So what love isn't? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us it's not just words, it's not just talents, it's not it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's not just sacrifice. It's this deep affection and action toward another person. It is, well, it's sincere and it's sensitive and it's sticky. So then that brings us to part three here, which is where can we find this real love? Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So then where do we find this true love? Well, the last part of this text might be the most important part of this text because there's a little bit of a problem in me talking about true love. The problem is when we see a picture of love painted this beautifully, we can't help but compare our real world experience to that beautiful vision. And for many of us, we have not felt from another person in a love like marriage or a family or in a church, we have not felt that kind of true love. I mean, many of us like seeing those families like the Igby family in that book or, or the Halpert family on that show. And we just think that is not my world. In fact, some of us carry incredibly deep wounds from some betrayal that we've experienced or some accusation that we've experienced or some church that not only didn't meet our needs, but they almost like took advantage of our time or something. And some of us carry with us this real pain, having run into judgmental, unfaithful, disappointing people. And this text, in some ways, can seem a little bit like a pipe dream. So where, I mean, he gives us this beautiful picture. Oh, that sounds great, Paul. But like, where do we actually find this kind of love? Well, we find out as we read through, well, the rest of this letter and other spots throughout the Bible that this kind of love ultimately comes, well, from God. Look at Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Or 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. What, what we find as we begin to study the scriptures is that true love must first come from the sacrificial love of Jesus. It comes from a recognition that we were created with beauty and dignity and worth in the image of God. And yet on our own, we have sprinted away from his love. And we've embraced all of our own kinds of selfishness and hatred and anger and prejudice and all of that stuff. And yet Jesus came and gave his very life so that we could be forgiven and we could experience his love. In a way, we have become independently wealthy in the love of Christ if you've come to a place of faith. It's like winning a lottery ticket to recognize, oh, I don't need to just try to love myself and save myself. The God of the universe loves me. He so loved the world that he gave Jesus for us. And so where does this kind of sensitive and sincere and sticky love come from? Ultimately, it must come first and foremost from Jesus and our understanding of who he is and what he's done. There was a German theologian named Helmut Tilika who may have written all kinds of bad things. I don't know much about Helmut, but I do know that this is a brilliant thing that he said. He was talking about this older married couple that he met, and he said, I once knew 
a very old married couple who radiated a tremendous happiness. The wife especially, who was almost unable to move because of old age and illness, and in whose kind old face the joys and sufferings of many years had etched a hundred runes, was filled with such gratitude for the life, for life that I was touched to the quick. Involuntarily, I asked myself, what could possibly be the source of this kindly old person's radiance? Otherwise, they were very common people, and their room indicated only the most modern comfort, but suddenly I knew where it all came from, for I saw these two speaking to each other and their eyes hanging upon each other. All at once, it became clear to me that this woman was dearly loved. And it was as if she was like a stone that had been lying in the sun for years and years, absorbing all of its radiant warmth, and now was reflecting back cheerfulness and warmth and serenity. Uh, Let me express it this way. It was not because she was this kind of cheerful and pleasant person that she was loved by her husband all those years. It was probably the other way around. Because she was so loved, she became the person I now saw before me. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A rock absorbing the sun's radiant warmth and then reflecting that back. Where can I find this true love? Well, it must start with receiving God's son's love, his radiant love extended to us, and then taking that in and then radiating it back. We are so loved by God. This agape kind of love, this this love that is, yes, it's required for marriage and family and all that, but it can only ultimately come from Jesus. Back to Jim and Pam for a minute. We we left them where Jim is hanging on and her arms are sort of out like this. So it's such a great scene because her arms are to the side and he's hanging on for dear life and then flashes to the wedding where his brother is reading this text. And as he's reading this text, after about 10 awkward seconds, you just see her hug Jim back. It's like she needed to first be given that kind of just sacrificial, I'm just going to give this to you, love, for her to receive that and then respond back. This is our story. This is how we find true love. We first receive it, and maybe we're awkward and guarded and slow to respond but Jesus is there extending it to us. And once we've received it, then we can begin to radiate that back. So where do we find this love? Well, we find it in Christ alone. Also, where to find this love somewhere else? Well, where? Like, do I have to find my significant other? Like, my, like is there some special person out there that's supposed to? No, no. The other place that the Apostle Paul says that we're supposed to be able to find this kind of love at church. I mean, That doesn't seem possible because we just said that churches miss the mark all the time in really truly loving one another the way they're called. And yet, this was written not in a way to say, oh, this is what true love is like, but that'll never happen. No, no. The Apostle Paul is expecting that as people go to this Corinthian church, that they will experience this radiated true love of Christ even for them. Most Vibrant churches are going to miss on occasion, but the Holy Spirit has filled our hearts with Christ's love. I I read to you a little bit earlier a verse from 1 John 3, and I just, I left out the rest of the verse, but, but this is what it says in 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, this is not the rest of it. And this love is only in Jesus and to be found nowhere else, so don't even bother. His love's so great, humans are too awful. No one and nothing can measure up. If you've been hurt, run. Create distance, isolate. Do whatever you can to never experience that hurt again. That's not what it says. It says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So he says, I think, that if the love of God is in you, it will overflow to the church. It sounds like he's saying that if you refuse to love a brother or sister in Christ, that the love of God isn't even in you. So like, it's almost impossible to actually receive the real love of God and then not radiate that to your brothers and sisters in the faith. And you might go, well, that was just John. I mean, we've been talking about Paul. Paul doesn't say that kind of stuff, does he? Yeah, he does. Check out this in 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Perfect. He's increasing and making us abound in love. That sounds like I can become independently wealthy in love and just get more and more love for myself. Except I didn't finish that verse either because it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So yes, perfect, true, real love is first and foremost from Jesus. But in order for us to have that kind of love that we so desire, it must flow not just into us, but through us to the others who are in the church with us if we're going to be like the Apostle Paul is encouraging, that the source of the supply of our love is Jesus, but that love must flow. Otherwise, we become a bit like the Dead Sea with the water going in, but never leaving and just sort of drying up and evaporating. And so, you cannot keep the true love that you hope to find. You have to give it away. So, we all want this. We all want this true love, right? So what is it not? Well, we talked about that. What is it? Well, we talked about that. The place to find it is in Jesus. And then once you've found it, you have to give it away. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that this would not just be a beautiful text, but this would be a beautiful prompt in our lives toward other people, toward our spouses and our friends and our families and ultimately the church. Thank you that you don't just give us words, but you give us your very spirit and you empower us to do the very things that you're calling us to do. May we be more loving with deep affection and real action this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.